Hi, babe. I have something for you. What is it? Just a little something. <laughs> Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Room. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. This is my movie, and this is my life. Hosted by Stuart. But you, man, you're like fearless, and I just, I, I want to feel that too. Jacob. Where in the hell did you meet a man like that? And Arnie. You have a malevolent presence. You are a perfect villain. I, I'm not Frankenstein. I'm a hero. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! Listener discretion is advised. Look, we'll talk about it later. I told you I'm very busy. I can't wait till later. I want to talk right now. Today we're discussing The Room. Starring, written by, produced by, executive produced by, and directed by Tommy Wiseau. Oh, hi, Stuart. Hi, Jacob. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. You're tearing me apart. It's Stuart. This is the host who did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Arnie. Hi, Stuart. This is Jacob. Yeah, you do the voice a lot better than I do. I wasn't even trying whatever that accent. <laughs> oh, it's all I've been doing this week. <laughs> He's been practicing. He's the reason why we're in this room. I can remember way back when I think we did our first brown arrow. I know who killed me. I was the one that brought it on board. I was like, guys, you're going to love it. It's hilarious. And you guys didn't love it. And Jacob came back to me and was like, if you want a funny bad movie, you got to see the room. I'm just shocked that this is on the regular feed. I always figured we'd do the room at some point, but it would be an Easter egg. And then we did patron reviews and said the Easter eggs and it would be on there. But no, it's now on the main feed because I guess it's kind of going mainstream due to the disaster artist. Yeah, this is a series, I guess we're calling it. This is the first part. It's really the tail end of 2017. Goodbye. Here's your lump of coal. And then we will be getting the good movie, hopefully, next week with the behind-the-scenes story about what this thing is we're here to talk about. I am only familiar with The Room because I moved to L.A. in the fall of 2005, and it was everywhere. Everywhere I went in Hollywood, there were billboards. I'd open up trade magazines. I'd see pictures of a black and white sullied man that looked very much like Gene Simmons. <laughs> I presumed it was a Kiss documentary. I had no idea what The Room was, but it kept boasting that it was the longest-running art house blockbuster of all time or what have you. It took me years to figure out that it was kind of the Rocky Horror of the new millennium. When we started doing Now Playing and reviewing bad movies and tearing them apart, I saw a lot of requests for a movie called The Room. And I got really confused, wondering why everyone wanted us to review this Jennifer Lopez, Dylan Baker film from 2000. They're saying it's the best, worst movie ever. I'm like, well, that movie sucked. I was thinking of The Cell. <laughs> oh, that is a bad movie. <laughs> Not in a good way, though. No. And so I'm like, they really want us to go that deep into Vincent D'Onofrio's filmography? And I had no idea, honestly, until like two years ago, that we were talking about a different movie than The Cell. And we were going to do this, yes, as a patron show. 
And then the Disaster Artist came out, and I'll be honest, I'm a brand newbie here. I didn't even know what the room was, I didn't know the jokes, and I'm really skeptical about the Disaster Artist. I've heard all the positive notices, but this is from the guys who brought us the interview, so how high should my (laughs) hopes really be? Well, we'll see next week. My question is, is anyone who hasn't seen The Room going to understand that? But that will be determined next week. I am here as the fan. I, As hip as I may be living out here in L.A., I did not discover this in 2003 when it was released. It wasn't until 2009 when Adult Swim played it as an April Fool's Day joke at midnight. And, you know, I watched Adult Swim on the Cartoon Network, you know, Aqua Teen Hunger Force and Space Ghost, you know, just all those kind of like stoner funny cartoons. And they played this movie and I had no idea what it was. I was mesmerized. I was cracking up when they'd black out everything but like a shoulder blade during the sex scenes. I had to find out about more about this movie once I saw that. And the Cartoon Network, they did that for two more years as their April Fool's Day joke playing it. So that's <laughs> how I came to know it. I've never made it to the midnight screenings, though. It's kind of a goal now that I've showed this to my wife and we showed them to the kids. We sent them out during the sex scenes. But they all want to go see a midnight showing this so they could throw plastic spoons at the screen. I- I know what that is because I insisted that was going to be my first experience. Wow, your first experience was the screening, midnight screening. Absolutely, and I probably would have seen it back in the day, but again, it looked manufactured. When you looked at the ads, it looked like something like Angeline, you know, like, oh, somebody's just bragging that they made this movie that people are seeing, and probably no one's seeing this movie, and they're like self-funding it appearing in the theaters. But no, this ran for many, many years in LA, and by the time I found out that it was this bad movie people had, it wasn't playing regularly in theatrical venues. So I just, I didn't have an opportunity until this past week. And so the first time I saw it was about six days ago. I drove down to St. Louis, college campus, went to a midnight screening. And yeah, I was stunned at the level of participation. (laughs) People acting things out, people brought props. And there's probably not a line of dialogue that somebody in the audience doesn't know and respond to in some way. That must be the ultimate way to see this, I would think. I will go ahead and just say that is the better way to see it. Of the two ways I saw it, that's the better way. I later, with a notepad and in a traditional now playing way, watched it on my computer to try and understand what I saw. But I wanted to experience (laughs) the phenomenon before I processed the movie. I will say this. My wife, I've always tried to convince her. I'm like, oh, you got to see this movie. It's so crazy. And she's like, "Uh, I don't know. It looks like some weird YouTube thing. Because I'd always show her these YouTube clips. And then I think I just showed her enough clips that it finally clicked where she's like, okay, I'm going to watch this with you something weird is going on and so we start playing it to watch for now playing and about 15 minutes in we stopped i'm like okay we need to look up what they do at the midnight screening so we were yelling along with it we were getting into it it took us probably three hours to get through that screening just because we'd stop rewind she's like wait 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 the continuity what's going on there and like we rewind and try to just it's already deconstructed we're trying to construct what was going on with this thing but it did take a while to become a phenomenon again it came out in 2003 where Tommy rented out a theater so he could do the premiere for two weeks because I guess for the rules of the Academy, a film has to be screened for at least two weeks to be considered for an Oscar. Yeah, because this one, it's going to win. I don't want to get into all the behind the scenes stuff because I think we're going to get a lot of that next week. But 
this guy's got some things going on in his head. He lives in a very different world than Redo. But eventually, yeah, this became a huge deal. I read The Zigfield in New York, 1,200 seats. This movie sold out there in 2010, which was the first time since like the Star Wars re-release in 97 that that place had been sold out. So yeah, it definitely got its cult following eventually. Yeah, I watched this with Marjorie so that we could both see it before The Disaster Artist. And she gave me some more misinformation. She told me Tommy Wiseau created a TV series I really find underrated, but I enjoyed, The Neighbors. He did, but I'm guessing it's a different one than the one you've seen. Yeah, I found that out later. I'm like, how could a guy with so little talent and so much ineptitude create this really funny series starring Jamie Gertz that was just smart and parodied Bollywood and all these various things and it never got its due. Yeah, he's on a different series called The Neighbors. Yeah, if you've ever seen, again, that the Cartoon Network show, Tim and Eric show, Great Job, which is just this like Dottist humor type thing. It's just really strange. They became big fans of Tommy and they're the ones who got it on the Cartoon Network. They were working with them. They're like, you got to develop a TV show. And, and so, yeah, it was a Hulu exclusive, The Neighbors. You got four episodes and look, whatever is really going on with Tommy, because he is such a mystery, people might say, oh, no, this is an act. This was all manufactured to make a bad movie, The Room. I will just say this. I started watching an episode of The Neighbors. It was so bad. That is Tommy trying to make something bad, and I couldn't sit through a full episode. This is the pure essence of Tommy with The Room, with no self-awareness, just as pure id on the screen. That was my question. My true question, seeing this man, is if this was like an Andy Hoffman type stunt in modern day. The fact that nobody can even tell his age. I looked him up on Wikipedia. They don't know where he got his money. Was he importing illegal jackets? Was he laundering money? Oh yeah, people on the set thought maybe this was a whole laundering scheme for the mob. Yeah, so the fact that he is such a mystery and that he is so weird with that accent, I just kept going back to Andy Kaufman. I never doubted the sincerity, and maybe that's because I was a TA for a film tech one class in my college years. And what that means is I had a teacher that didn't want to do the job and said, why don't you take control of the class and you be the mentor for 20, 30 students that are going to tell you their ideas and you mentor them while they make their first films. I want to say right now, I've seen The Room a lot. (laughs) Not this particular version, but people make this movie all the time. When you're starting out behind the camera, the amateur mistakes that are here are quite common. In fact, I would make the argument there are more movies like The Room than aren't, but there is a system in place to protect audiences from ever seeing them. (laughs) Stuart, this is the big difference. None of them have tried to sell this as great American movie. As far as I can tell, Tommy is sincere. Or, you know what... He's come to kind of accept that this movie's a joke now, but it took him years, from what I understand, to come to that acceptance and just go with it. But I've read The Disaster Artist. Again, we'll discuss that more next week. But he seems pretty sincere, and he felt like an outsider. He wanted to feel like a real American, and he had unlimited money, and this is what he came up with. He was going to prove himself to the world that he was an actor and had great stories to tell. He was like his two heroes, Marlon Brando and James Dean. Yeah, here's the thing. I'm sort of at a crossroads because I love a good bad movie. I mean, nobody loves it more than me. I used to hold festivals at my house, invite people over when I lived in L.A. And would we would just love consuming that kind of stuff. 
But it's got to be schadenfreude, right? Like the pleasure derived from another person's misfortune. It's got to be someone that deserves it. Like I love watching M. Night movies because he acts like he's Spielberg or Hitchcock and his resume says Ed Wood. You know, like that's the kind of thing that's fun. Common people. I mean, again, I go back to that Tech One class. I didn't want to ridicule these fresh faces that were trying to find their voice and clearly coming from backgrounds where they didn't have all the information and God knows what was going on in their personal life. I will always wonder to this day about one video where some guy killed his roommate and then ate the bone. <laughs> I don't know what happened to him. I don't know. I agree, Stuart, but there is such hubris with them. The fact that he had some clothing line and he wanted to get his SAG card, his Screen Actors Guild membership. And so he made a fake commercial for his clothing line and submitted it and he got his SAG card. This is someone like, if he couldn't get in there with his talent, he was going to buy his way in there because in his mind, he was so great. So I think he's kind of asking for this critique. He wanted this. He wanted to be big American movie star. And so he's got to deal with those repercussions. Yeah, and I think sometimes that can be really interesting to see somebody, even if they're not talented or, or it's not even about them. I mean, I had this feeling about the song Friday, like just to watch this 13-year-old try to recreate what we assume is just an average pop song. The mistakes that are made say more about us sometimes than it does about them. And I do think that, yeah, if this is somebody's idea about what an Oscar movie is, it may have some relevance on yeah how we look at dramas and the way that Hollywood markets some of its serious movies. And I would just say that anyone who creates opens themselves up and invites criticism. So I don't care if it's a student film, you always get feedback. I was an English major and I remember writing what I thought was the great American short story. Yeah, I remember giving you some of that feedback. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking after you. And so I went to my teacher and I said, teacher, give me something. Oh boy, I didn't want that. <laughs> I also think this is really interesting just from a psychological perspective, seeing this as an outsider of Hollywood and also as an immigrant. Mm -hmm. We can say whatever you want about Tommy. I don't think he's from America. He, he says New Orleans or France. Like there's so many questions about where he comes from, but this is a guy who wants to be a real American and this is how he sees America and masculinity. And so I think just seeing this raw, naked psychology on the screen, I find super interesting. That's what I mean. It, it says a lot about us that he would think that this fits in with what we normally process. I'm pretty sure he's Austrian. He sounded like Arnold to me. According to some Reddit detectives, they're saying Poland. Yeah, I was going to go with that way. A lot of the film students that would come in from where I was at in Chicago, they were Eastern European. Poland is what I, I started to create an idea because I still don't know much about this movie's creation and look forward to the movie next week spoiling all those surprises. I'm still protected now now to tell my own story about who Tommy Wiseau is. And I feel like, yeah, he's a Polish guy who learned to speak English by watching American sitcoms. And then he came here to create an Oscar bait with his life savings. Bottomless bank account is how it's described in the book, The Disaster Artist. This guy, he has real estate. He has his clothing line. Again, who knows how much of this is true, but this film cost six million dollars when you told me that, that i had no idea about that portion of it it looks so poor there are so many technical problems i've seen so many good well-made movies that are half a million dollars or less 
It was astounding to think that they had that much resource to be good and wind up with a product like this. Yeah, this is soap opera cheap. This is single set. This does scream student movie to me because we'd look when we were making student movies. What do we have? We have your apartment. We're going to bring in some lights and some cameras and some actors. And it's going to be basically a stage play in a single room that we're filming because that's what we got. That's what this seems like. Well, they did have a soundstage. Look, he had two cameras. He bought all the equipment, not realizing you could just rent this stuff. He bought a 35 millimeter camera and an HD camera, had a custom mount built so he could put both cameras on there and film them side by side at the same time. Everything used is from the 35 millimeter print. He says like on the DVD, and again, I th this is before I think he became real self-aware, so I don't think he's joking that much in it. He's like, oh, yeah, I, this is groundbreaking using two cameras, digital and film. And I'm going to release a whole book about how this is the future of film. Like he had no idea what he was doing. This is a Panavision movie. Yeah, that is an expensive thing. They don't give it to you. I mean, so he bought it. He just flat out bought from Panavision. They make you rent their cameras. That's crazy. Panavision was so excited. They gave him a whole crew wow. to help him use this stuff. They gave him a script supervisor, Sandy Shaclear, I think it said. That's the Seth Rogen character that we'll be talking about next week, who now he's fighting for credit for directing this film because he really took over the production. Uh, I mean, if you want it, I mean, again, this could be Alan Smithy. I think now you want it now it's a money maker yeah you're right money solves all of these issues and what was embarrassing now yeah is he can eat out on this for the rest of his life yeah i mean he made his money back and is still making money on this so in the end who are we to judge right oh we're here to judge yes. you give him the plot <laughs> good luck Yes, and we will give red arrows or brown arrows to the room. Yeah, just give us the relevant scenes. It should be a real short plot summary. Tit shot, tit shot, ass shot, tit <laughs> shot. Wait, oh, that what you're talking about, Jacob? If those are what you feel like are the relevant scenes, really, this is a William S. Burroughs cut up thing. You could put these scenes in any order <laughs> and it will make as much sense as what we're going to talk about. I think there's an order you could put them in that would make more sense. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know. I tried to. I tried. I'll talk about it. Johnny, played by Tommy Wiseau, is a wealthy banker. He lives with his fiancée, Lisa. Future wife. <laughs> fiancée is never said. It's future wife, future husband. But despite Tommy showering her in gifts, Lisa no longer loves Johnny, so she seduces and begins an affair with Johnny's best friend, Mark. Their affair continues for weeks while Johnny and Lisa's wedding draws ever near. Or days or years. It's very unclear. <laughs> Finally, at Johnny's surprise birthday party, Lisa's duplicity is confirmed. She leaves Johnny for Mark, so Johnny kills himself. Guilt-ridden, Mark dumps Lisa, who's left alone as credits roll. Man, you didn't even talk about Denny or Michelle or Mike or Peter. You wanted the plot. I gave you the plot. In fact, I was watching this movie for about 60 or 70 minutes before I turned to Marjorie and I'm like, do you know what the plot is? Yeah. <laughs> that is the great thing, showing this to someone for the first time. I remember sitting there watching it by myself. I'm like, wait, what happened to Chris R and the gun and that whole storyline? Well, we didn't mention Chris R in the plot. There's a reason why. Yeah. I mean, I'm in TA mode again. I can't even evaluate. Normally, I'm like, well, the act breaks are here. The It's like there's a code. When you make a movie everyone understands this is the blueprint and we're not working off any blueprint we're not working with someone that didn't even know there were blueprints and so again i approach this less as condemning someone for not following the formula and more like what are you trying to do i mean let's start with the title 
why is this called The Room? I really wondered that. And in fact, I see it in all caps sometimes. I wondered if it stood for something or what room is it? Is it the living room or is it the bedroom? (laughs) There's a lot of this that takes place in one room, but it's not like the whole thing is in one room like that hotel room series from Lynch. It might be a little bit helpful to understand that this was originally written for the stage and it was like 500 pages long. Oh, <laughs> I don't know how versed Wiseau is in other movies, but I you know there was a movie I'm a, a big fan of Marlon Brando. If he's a Marlon Brando fan, he and Maria Schneider made this movie called Last Tango in Paris. And it's about two lovers that just decide the rest of the world don't matter. And they confine themselves in a room. And it's really, they devolve really into almost primordial characters. Yeah, where I learned butter makes good lube. Yes. Yeah, in the supposed original script that Greg Sestero, who plays Mark, was selling, again, I read through most of it. I have my doubts if it's actually the real script. But instead of Denny, the neighbor kid, you have Billy, who's Lisa's brother, who, as in the movie, is just a homo. That's Claudette, the mother, does not like him because he's a homo and he's making jokes about butter. Because he's a big fan of Brando, I did think of Last Tango in Paris. But when he hired the composer, he told the composer, who teaches at a university, believe it or not, like the guy who did all the music in this teaches people about music. Well, I mean, it's not my taste, but at least it's real music. <laughs> but he told he's like, you watch Streetcar Named Desire. This is the same type. This is a modern version of that. Yeah, he is obsessed with Brando. The way I take this title ultimately means is it's hermetically sealed. Wiseau is doing everything and he's not taking opinions from anybody else. And this is something you always tell people early on. Make friends with other film students. Get other ideas. Have a group of people you trust and bounce off ideas. If you are the director, producer, writer, actor, and all decision maker, you're really sealing yourself up into a room that's going to look very weird when you show it to other people. I think you put more thought in that title than Wiseau did, according to him. It's because many things can happen in a room. Good things, bad things. It's real life. (laughs) Yes, he does have a talent for stating the obvious sometimes. And yes, many (laughs) things happen in rooms. Yes, in fact, almost everything, except when you're outdoors. Yes. Sometimes it happens in a hallway, but... (laughs) (laughs) Too complicated. Make it simple, Arnie. Simplify. And this guy, you said Gene Simmons. To me, he's the son of the Crypt Keeper with that hair and a gaunt face. I really expected him to go, but instead he's, his laugh is creepy. I was stunned that there was a makeup artist on this because, again, this is another thing you learn. Skin tones don't look good when you just film them (laughs) nakedly. You need people to apply makeup. Although at one point he is just covered in rouge. But, But for the most part his whole look is very very startling and uh, that we are supposed to think of him as an average banker anywhere in this world (laughs) is again telling you a lot about how this person sees himself and how disconnected it is from reality yeah he was trying to claim he was like 32 33 when he was making this there's no way this guy is in his 30s Probably not in his 40s. Maybe in his 60s. He's ageless to me. I have no idea. I honestly couldn't peg it. He doesn't look 50 to me, but yet he doesn't look 30 either. I don't know (laughs) what he is. This man is an enigma. Honestly, he could be the villain of the next Leprechaun movie, and I'd believe it. (laughs) 
To me, though, he just looks like what people call Euro trash. All the ill-fitting clothes, the wardrobe person should be fired, the makeup person, like everything is ill-fitting and baggy and tank tops and cargo pants. The pocket's just stuffed, so they're billowing out. Again, I just had this image of him learning English by watching 10 years of Full House on Ukrainian TV and coming here (laughs) and feeling like, I can do this too. In fact, so much about this movie, this setup, The opening shot. I mean, when we get these establishing shots of San Francisco, one of them is of the Fuller House. So, yes, I wanted to break into the Full House song. You'll also notice Alcatraz a lot. There's a famous... Again, I don't know how true it is. In that supposed original script I read, there's a whole subplot where Johnny is a vampire. (laughs) And he had this idea for the vampire of Alcatraz, colon, King of the Vampires, which, look, I'd watch the hell out of that movie. But I'm guessing that's why you see Alcatraz so much. I'm sticking with Full House, particularly when we get to the room. And at first I'm thinking... She won last place in the Britney Spears lookalike. And then I'm thinking, no, she won first place in the Stephanie Tanner lookalike. <laughs> Lisa is a spinning image. I'm trying not to be mean because, look, I want to blame everything on Tommy. But yeah, there's some unfortunate names where Britney's part of that and things about her weight and such come before that. Yeah, she does not have the usual body that we see in someone as naked as she is in this film, <laughs> is what I'll say. And she also doesn't know how to move her body in ways to accentuate her best features and to make sure things don't fold over on themselves. And again, that comes to, I think, the cinematographer, the director, Tommy Wiseau. I mean, yeah, Greg in the book will blame the wardrobe artist because there are some awful blouses they put her in that just, they're not for her body type. That red dress is wonderful. What are you talking about? You look so sexy, Lisa. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, this is a common mistake. Someone wrote a story and they filmed it and it's supposed to be this beautiful woman that no one can resist. And then something went wrong and the actress didn't show up and you had to cast your sister who's like the wrong age, the wrong (laughs) everything. Here, you want to know what went wrong? Juliet Daniel, who plays Lisa, she was originally Michelle, another useless character we'll talk about. Okay. Tommy fired everyone. Greg Sestro was not Mark. There was another Mark, but Tommy's like, I want you, Greg. I want you. He fired like half the cast, blaming it on the producers that do not exist. There are people that he knew that were dead when this was made that he said were producers so he could blame it on someone. He just mixed and matched all these actors, kicked people out of roles, put new people in it. So yeah, they're awful casting choices. Maybe that's why we'll never see Chris R. again. We'll get to him, but... Chris R. is the best actor in this movie. (laughs) I really thought you guys had tricked me. I mean, we discussed at one point reviewing the superhero porn parodies and decided we weren't going to (laughs) do porn on Now Playing. And then I watched the first half hour of this and I'm like... This, I'm watching way too early in the day. Skinamax is supposed to put this on at 11 p.m. What the fuck have you guys got me watching? With my 97-year-old grandmother, I might add. (laughs) I gotta ask you, Arnie, because this was your first viewing, and I didn't realize this until I really did a deep dive for this movie. How old did you think Denny was? I really jumped around. At first, I was thinking he was a 14-year-old trying to play 12 or 11. Yep. (laughs) 
he was one of the oldest actors on the set. Later, they talk about him paying tuition. And so I'm like, wait, is he 19? Uh, can I play this game? Because I felt like he was 30 years old. I felt like he was a really young-looking 30-year-old that was pretending to be a teenager. Yeah, I always thought he was supposed to be like a 12 to 14-year-old until I really got into it for this review, and I realized, no, he is in college, which makes it even weirder because he acts like a 12-year-old with the way he just walks into this house and goes upstairs while Johnny and Lisa are making whoopee with <laughs> with their pillow fight and tries to join them. This is so strange. I want to watch you watch them fuck. Yeah, I think so. Denny is my favorite. Denny is a godsend because, again, <laughs> if you look at this as an episode of Full House, this is that wacky neighbor that, you know, like Monroe or countless sitcoms that walks into an applause, except they don't have that. You just referenced Too Close for Comfort. I just want to point that yeah. out. That is like a deep bull Monroe. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? And it's like, oh, usually this is the character that steals the scene because they're so funny and they're out of touch. And what they do is makes the other characters laugh at them. And that's kind of what's staged here. It's like, Denny, come on, give us a break. Except because there's so much sex, it's crazy. What I love is seeing this as someone where English isn't their first language and just getting the idioms wrong. Like, two's great, but three's a crowd. No, it's two's company, three's a crowd. Like, they will do this over and over where just these strange lines. But yeah, Denny, this has had to have worked for him in the past. Like, just walking into people's rooms <laughs> and saying, hey, can I watch you? Because he is fearless here. The other thing about this movie, and maybe you could answer this, Jacob, but the whole thing feels like I would often see on Skinamax, like a foreign film where they got absolutely the cheapest voiceover actors to dub the lines because the inflection, the delivery, the lack of lip sync at times makes it so that I feel like this isn't any of their voices and that I'm watching like a French film. It is their voices. I figured it is their voice, but... Is every single thing looped? I don't know if it's all looped, but what's weird, again, in the DVD extras, when he's doing an interview, like in the middle of the interview, in the middle of an answer, he loops his own voice in it. I'm like, is this a joke? Is he punky me? Or is this real? I don't know. He is Andy Kaufman. Hmm. I see what you're getting at there, but I just took it to mean that there are times where his accent is so thick that no one can understand it, so they had him go back and try and yeah establish that. The crazy thing is, seeing that they just probably looped almost all his lines, whenever he was on set and had to speak, it took hours because he couldn't remember the words. And he's the guy who wrote the script. So the fact that he could have just said whatever and they could have looped it later, it's many of the blunders throughout this film. I just got so distracted, though, during one of the sex scenes because they're playing with like rose petals and everything. I know what you're going to say. And she rolls over to turn yes. off the light. And I'm like, oh my God, is that a melanoma? Yeah, she looks like she has open legion sores yes. on her back. <laughs> You know, here's the thing about the sex scenes. And again, what I'm really appreciating about this movie, the extra dimension that it's giving you. <laughs> Do you want more dimensions in these sex scenes, Stuart? We've seen these sex scenes before and never laughed. You watch any movie from the 80s, some action thing, they always have candles and roses and some bad baby face or Richard Marks love ballad playing over that. This guy saw all those and said, I can do this too. You're seeing a child try to reinterpret what we accept is completely normal and having it spat back at us, we go, what were we watching? I mean, it's 
crazy. And I gotta say, this is where you really appreciate the live audience. Because every time they're kissing, the entire audience is going, um, um, yes, um. <laughs> and I just was confused. Like, is he just tit fucking her? I mean, he's like up on the headboard. No, he's not. He's not high enough to be titty fucking her, and he's not low enough to be doing her in the <laughs> vagina. I don't know what he's sticking his dick in. Belly button fucking? I don't know. But, you know, I, again, I just... All the cues, you know, all the things that are going to... Like, he wakes up and smells a rose beside the bed and <laughs> shows his ass because that'll be sexy. All of these... Honestly, it's not different from the instincts of Michael Bay. I mean, when Michael Bay wants to show you America, he has a mother put an apple pie on a windowsill. I mean, the difference is the level of sophistication and the technical achievement. I mean, this guy doesn't know how to work the camera, and he doesn't know where the story's going, but his instincts are pure spot on as far as what this kind of rudimentary storytelling is. As they say, the devil is in the details, or or whatever we are saying Tommy would phrase it as. But yeah, I'm looking at the unsexiest sex scene ever, probably, and I'm just looking at this room, this bedroom. I'm like, this is not a bedroom people live in. There are like gothic candlesticks and these sheer curtains coming down, and where's like the underwear on the floor and can of soda sitting on a dresser? Like, no one lives in this room. No, but again, I'm comparing this to Skinamax for the first half hour, and you never see that stuff in one of those either. I'm later going to decide he'd be better off without Lisa, not only because she's a cheating, conniving bitch, but she has the worst decorating taste on earth if she thinks taking sheer sheets from Bed Bath & Beyond and putting them on the ceiling is making this Cleopatra-like bed. <laughs> and they're going to show us two sex scenes in very short secession that I think might be the same sex scene because... Oh, no, it is. It is the same shot. And Juliet Daniels said, who played Lisa, she was horrified that in the final cut that the sex scenes were so long. She's like, they're never this long unless it is a Skinamax type movie. And that he used all the footage and he used it twice. Yeah, because he brings roses home before the second sex scene. And yet in the first sex scene, he's dropping roses petals everywhere and I'm like wait and the position looked the same there are shots that are exactly the same they reused footage i thought so but maybe he's just a bad lay and again this movie the way it's constructed there are so many times where they talk about a surprise birthday party and then i think it's already happened there's a wedding and they're engaged and then i think we actually see them dressed in tuxes <laughs> and go and then they're waiting for the wedding yeah she decorates for the party and then it's undecorated <laughs> i wonder if the editor either didn't read the script or there was no script or maybe they just were trying to sabotage this movie but they could help this movie very easily with just a few minor cuts you talk about the room being about isolation tommy wanted full control he fought with the crew fired the crew at one point had to get a second crew there was a script no one ever saw it except him and Greg. He wouldn't show anyone the full script. He'd just say, here's your pages for the day. Because people have asked these actors, did you know how bad this was? They're like, no, we just knew what we were shooting that day. And we didn't know how it was all going to come together. When they got to the editing room, Tommy wanted full control. The editor's like, well, we should do this. We should get rid of this scene. He's like, no, this scene very important. He took full control. Yeah, so he's really the editor. I mean, yeah, again, it feels that way. It feels like no decision will be made without Tommy signing off. I've seen too many of those films. Some people can do that. You can be Kubrick and do everything, but very few people are Kubrick. And certainly when you're starting out, you want to trust 
trust the people around you that have done it more. I mean, people would try to ad lib lines to make them make sense. And he would catch them and say, no, redo. You do it like I wrote. <laughs> and there's been a couple movies like that where they want to correct the English and the director is not an English speaker and tries to turn them back. But here... There's so much sex in the first half hour that I literally think this guy spent his money just to be in bed with an attractive naked woman. I watched a Batman porn parody that was written by the Joker in the movie. He wrote it so the Joker had all the best sex scenes and all the crazy sex. And I'm like, you are so transparent. I see exactly what you're doing. I thought that's what this movie was. I had no idea the sex was going to just disappear after 30 minutes. I'll say to be fair to Tommy, which I, I haven't been very fair to him, but he is European. I think probably and that's a European thing just to have the sex scenes and I again from the book that's kind of the perspective they had just oh it's just a European thing and he knew he wanted these sex scenes because that's how European films are yeah and I'm I think that he was selling himself Oh, that's why the ass shot is there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you could say that he wanted to be in bed with her, but I'm, I think the opposite. He wants to show everyone, hey, I'm really cut, and here's my ass. I see a man that is trying to tell Hollywood, give me the Oscar. I'm going to bear all in this. I'm going to go to all emotional extremes, and I am going to, you know, kill myself and show myself and do everything to win that award, which is what we do. Usually, the Oscar goes to the performance that is the biggest, that goes to the most emotional extreme, and this is what he's trying to replicate here. This is his Oscar bit. Except that here, there's like no emotion from the actors. That's the problem is every line is being delivered in such a flat manner that I'm not quite sure what I'm even supposed to feel. I mean, Juliet was just off the bus from Texas, her first role. A lot of people, this was their first thing ever. Greg Sestero, his biggest role was in Retro Puppet Master, like a prequel, I think. I've never seen those movies. I watched it specifically for this this morning. I did watch a clip. <laughs> Here's the thing about Puppet Master is it's kind of tedious. You know, he's not any worse than the rest of the movie. I would say that he actually seems like he could be an actor that could play the dude or the surfer guy in sitcoms. And he's got those soap opera looks. Yeah, to me. it's like this is standard Hollywood. Yeah, I can see why this guy thinks he could be an actor. He's better than than the rest of this cast. He could go on to do marginal work. And did, apparently, you know, Retro Puppet Master, if you call that. And I do. That's work. He got paid for that. That's a movie you can rent. He had a glamorized cameo in Patch Adams. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he is the object of obsession. We will eventually learn through a garbled means involving the mother character that Lisa is not happy. She looked pretty happy in bed, but no. Okay, I was going to ask you guys that because you're new to this. Does that opening scene where she's getting the dress and she's letting her hair down, which I crack up at because it barely reaches her shoulders. There's nothing to <laughs> let down, but like they're banging for a long time and she's smelling that rose in the morning. Does she seem like someone that's annoyed with Johnny that she wants out of this? No, there's something missing there because she seems really happy unless she's just such a faker. I mentioned again, there's the two sex scenes right in a row and she tells her mother she's unhappy between them. And yet he comes home with some flowers at that scene. I love the dog in that scene. Hey, puppy. Yeah, that is that's one of those great scenes because it, obviously you cut that. It serves absolutely no <laughs> yes. narrative purpose to show where he gets the flowers. It just, no one was asking that question. It's continuity. 
Stewarty Stewart, if he just came home with flowers, I'd have questions. Yeah. Look, a lot of the places they actually shot in San Francisco, like there's going to be a coffee shop. Supposedly, like he owns those places. He's the landlord. And again, going to this myth that he's like this great land baron in San Francisco and this is where his money comes from. So I don't know. Maybe he's just trying to promote his different businesses. Uh, perhaps, but I love the floor that She didn't recognize him. I mean, <laughs> Johnny, you're my favorite customer. She must be blind. I mean, I, you, you can see this guy coming from a country mile. I mean, he sticks out in a crowd and he's showing up every day to buy a dozen roses so he can spread it over the mattress at night. Yeah, again, by this point, I really was enjoying the movie. I was starting to laugh. At first, you just kind of watch it cockeyed. You're like, I don't know what I'm seeing here other than I know that it's unprofessional. I don't know how to process it. But once we get into the quote unquote plot, which is that Lisa is a two timer, that's when the laughs really are starting to come. Yeah, it, it's so bizarre because Lisa, you're like, ah, she seems like she really loves Johnny, but now she's calling Mark to come over tomorrow at noon, but I think he's wearing the same clothes. I don't know if a day has passed. There are so many establishing shots in this movie, yet they establish nothing. I have no idea what the timeline is for this. But Mark comes over, and he seems totally clueless that he's being seduced, even though Lisa's like, ooh, it's getting hot in here. Let me take off my little mini coat. Yeah, a child could interpret these cues where she's pouring drinks and running her hand over his shoulder. I mean, the candles, the music, that's not playing. Yeah. <laughs> but he hears the music. He's like, what's going on? The music? Yeah, except I don't think the soundtrack's music is actually being played in the scene for the actors. If we were to do a drinking game, how drunk would you be by the end of it with him saying, Johnny's my best friend? Almost as drunk as if we did that every time she says, I don't love Johnny. <laughs> Perhaps. Or the word hi is said. I mean, there are so many drinking games you can make with this film. Every time that weird, bulbous flesh mound pops out of her Lisa's neck when she talks. So many reoccurring things that you could get wasted on. Yeah, but this seems to be a hang-up here. I'm going to guess that something about this story is autobiographical, and this is it. That this Wiseau had a best friend and had a girlfriend and they were all so nice to him and then surprise, surprise, one day he found out that they were cheating on him and this is his interpretation of that. And it's funny to me because it's so clear that he should know that they're cheating. I mean, later on, yes. you know, he's taping them. They're literally saying it in front of him. He's on the staircase about three feet from them. And yet there's this denial. And there's also this put on here that Mark keeps saying this bitch is making him do this, that he doesn't want to cheat on this. I feel like this is where this character is just not owning up to his own responsibility in the failure of this relationship. I'll just say that this is a very misogynistic film. Yes. Like, none of the women are good. There is a fan theory that Lisa is a witch and she's just casting a spell on Mark because he's like, no, we can't do this. This is awful. Then they fuck. And he's like, why did you make me do that? I'm never going to do this again with you. I'll say this much. There is that myth of men can't say no. If a woman tries to seduce a man, a man can't say no. I have been in the situation where my best friend's wife tried to fuck me. I said no. So you can indeed say no. But that is, I think, what they're going on here is, you know, once a woman gets close enough and rubs enough, you get an erection and all of a sudden, well, you, it's, it's like a drug. As soon as you're hard, you're like, well, I got to fuck you now. I just can't. I, there's no choice. And he... Over the course of the movie, the only character evolution in this entire movie is that at the beginning, Mark's like, you made me do this. And then he's like, 
don't make me do this again. And later he's like, all right, let's do this. Again, having read the book, there's something about Tommy Wiseau. I don't want to say he's a homosexual, but I feel like there might be some tendencies. Like we see the way he interacts with Denny in this movie, like the way he's holding him, those his fingers through his hair. In The Disaster Artist, he's got this relationship with Mark, and when he thinks he's superior, they're best friends, and then Mark gets his retro puppet master role, and he, like, turns against him, and he's very jealous. So I don't make a distinction between Johnny and Tommy. Like, they are the same person. This is an autobiographical role here that, yeah, there's this deep-seated paranoia that he feels for whatever reason. This has probably happened to him, and whatever hang other hangups he may have. And again, the need to blame the woman. Both Mark and Johnny are going to ultimately put it on. And she's terrible. I mean, believe me, the way she's portrayed, it's just laughable that this is his conception of someone that he could be so in love with. It's just ridiculous. And another character I absolutely love is Claudette, the mom that will roll in <laughs> periodically, sort of on Johnny's side, and yet is also supposed to represent the bitchiness that inspired Lisa to begin with. Yeah, I'm trying to understand Claudette character because she's like oh just marry Johnny he's good for you can't get a real job yeah. you can't support yourself I'm like damn mom that that is harsh I was really confused because she says he's going to buy you a house and so I think this is all taking place at Lisa's house and Johnny's coming over from Johnny's house and then later I think they live together and again there's so much of this movie that confuses me and I'm trying to suss it out. I truthfully feel like this is the best fuck murder on the Orient Express. This is the best mystery <laughs> film I've seen in a long time as you try to figure out who did what to who, where and with what. Yeah, no, as I've been doing this deep dive, I'm like, oh wait, this is starting to make sense. I could see the intention behind this scene and then I'll watch it again. I'm like, oh wait, that totally discount. Like, I don't know if there's answers here, but it is a great enigma. I hate to say it, but Lisa kind of reminds me when I took my first corporate job. Like, I had to answer phones. And so I was always like nice, like on the phone. I'm like, oh, let me help you. I'll answer all your questions. And then I, because I was at work and I felt like you had to hate work, I'd always hang up the phone and just ridicule that person for hours <laughs> on end. That's kind of what she does. It's like every time Johnny leaves the room, she will just say he's horrible. And then every time he shows up, she genuinely seems like she's grateful for having all of the blame. That is the problem that it genuinely feels like she loves him. This, because there is no acting involved in this movie. If this was an, actor that can act, you would get that there's this sarcasm to her affection towards Johnny. I'll almost go with her in this far. I have known certain women, including my best friend's ex-wife, who thrive on drama. And she may be perfectly fine with Johnny, but... She's watched too many movies, much like Wiseau has himself, and she's watching soap operas, and she feels like her life is boring, and so she's going to tell people, I don't love Johnny. She may love Johnny in her way, in so much as a sociopath is able to, but she's doing this to rile up her mother, to build drama. She's going to seduce the best friend. Why do you seduce the best friend? Well, this is a very small cast. There's not a lot of choices, but people do pop up out of nowhere later on yeah no we don't even know what mark does we don't know what his job is it's never told we're told he's doing great at his job claudette confuses me like everyone does because at times she's like just go with it johnny's good for you he's gonna get you a house and a car and then other times she's like you can't break his heart just marry him she, like i feel like claudette is the reason lisa is awful <laughs> but i feel like claudette would also just say you know what just marry him and fuck dudes on the side and don't get caught like instead though she's like no you got to be true to him if you're going to marry him. 
It's so confusing. I get the impression she's husband hopped. Uh, that she has worked her way up the social ladder through marriage, and that she wants her daughter to do the same. Yeah, that was one of the funnier line shout-outs, is that she says at one point, I know men, and someone went, because you were one. I mean, we don't know her past, but she does seem to have some calculation there. And again, you just love watching this character who, you know, it's, again, the sitcom thing. There's always the kin-pecking mother-in-law that walks into an applause line and tells our poor main characters what they can and can't do, and it's kind of funny and lovable, but at the same time causing all those problems. I'm seeing all of these tropes, but done by someone that doesn't, and English is a second language, sometimes you don't get humor, sometimes you don't get the joke, and that's what this feels like. Someone that didn't get the joke, trying to tell it in a language he's not entirely certain of. Can you explain to me her breast cancer? <laughs> nope. Hey, Arnie, didn't you hear? They're curing lots of people every day. Don't worry about it. I think that that was meant to be showing that she is overdramatic and over the top. That she doesn't have breast cancer and that this is just a woman that is going to, like every sitcom mother-in-law, just make these grand statements, much like Lisa will make these grand statements. But because of the way it's scripted, it does end up becoming this chilling dismissal of a poor woman that got breast <laughs> Here's the thing, Stuart. You're saying, oh, maybe they're playing it this way or that. In the original script, like that breast cancer thing keeps coming up. Mm. Like that is not a drop subplot. But whenever he decided to do this revision, it's a drop subplot. Yeah, no, tone. You know, sometimes you don't. Because life doesn't have a tone, you know, one minute you could be in a comedy and the next minute you're in a tragedy. You sound like Tommy right now. Life very complicated. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like I'm getting in his wavelength then. I mean, again, I think I know this guy. I think I've instructed this guy. I've seen this guy's films many times. And so, yeah, they think, well, because this happened to me and that happened to me, I can smash them together and it will make sense in a movie format. And so often you, you learn that you have to guide that. You have to shape what life doesn't. And you have to create that experience for people, for them to follow the characters. Otherwise, it feels like madness, which this is by this point. When we have a subplot about Denny and the drug dealer. I mean, it's off the rails and we'll never find them again. What the hell? This is the best scene in the movie, although by the same token, I'm really distracted. I had to watch one of the bonus features because everything on that roof seemed so surreal and yet because this is a lower budget film I figure it's a practical location I'm like is there a green screen there and yes all of this is green screen there is even though Tommy owns an apartment building in San Francisco where they could filmed on top of it and done all this practically for much less I'm sure the only thing I'll say in that defense is sometimes it's hard to control the wind but since so much of this is looped anyway you don't have to worry about sound you film it in the real location i remember the first time i watched this this is when i just said wait wait nothing's paying off here like chris r shows up best actor in the film i like the coffee barista better but i know what you mean (laughs) that was a real employee but yeah he pulls that gun out because denny owes him money now in that original script this was billy lisa's brother being held up by chris r who had some other name he supposedly owed money because he was a prostitute and that was his pimp. Oh, okay. So it was, there was a darker edge to it, it sounds like. This comes off as a very special family ties. No, no. The mother in the scene and her 
incessant shrieking yeah. takes it from family ties to just bitch what interest is this of yours anyway well that's what's so great if you go by that script that was her son who she had disowned because he was a homo as she puts it. I see. But because of the, it's structured the way it is, she literally met him the previous scene, uh-huh. and now she's like getting in his vice and, what kind of drugs? Who are you? I mean, yeah, watching her take control of this situation is absolutely hysterical. I don't know who I love more in this scene, Denny or Claudette, but yeah, it is one of the highlights. I do love Lisa too. Just what kind of money was it? I don't know. Japanese yen. What do you think, bitch? <laughs> I, that is one of the great, great, yeah, misnomers of, of just what kind of money it is. Yeah, I was just thinking U.S. currency. And, and just her delivery, like, what's going on? Somebody help. And just as weird as Chris are, I mean, this movie does so much wrong. It does everything wrong. But again, it really, really felt like Skinamax when we're in, I guess, their apartment and two completely new characters come in and just start making out on the sofa. I'm like, are we going to have another gratuitous sexy? This is not how you introduce characters. Yeah, Michelle and Mike, who they just come over to fuck in their apartment, like, that's their thing. That's what Lisa is going to tell us. They like to use our apartment for fucking, basically. And they pull out... Cho- Again, the idiom is not chocolate is the symbol of love. No one says that. It's an aphrodisiac. But I guess that translates different into Polish or wherever he's from. Yeah, and this is a, definitely a common mistake. If someone is trying to tell a joke in a student film, they usually will tell it again and again and again because it's so funny. And like, how many times does this character come back and talk about the underwear? Me underwears. I don't know if it's legit or not but prior to the screening of this movie they ran an advertisement it looked like a calvin klein ad in which you can apparently go to tommy and buy his branded underwear now like this scene has gotten so popular there's a spin-off if you're looking for a collectible i don't want to think about anything of tommy's being near my dick <laughs> well if you got some christmas cash to burn apparently you can get this underwear that is just so hysterical that they keep bringing it up yeah, the only thing funny is when he's eating one of those chocolates while she's going down on him. He's got his O face before she's even gotten to his dick. <laughs> I thought that was his, like, I'm chewing a caramel and she's going down on me. And so this caramel is good and the blowjob is good. And that's just the <laughs> wacky face when two great things that taste great together come. And I think the reason to have her, God help me, I'm looking at structure. <laughs> but the reason why you have Michelle is she is Lisa's best friend. So she is going to be there to begin giving advice to Lisa as Lisa's saying I'm cheating about Mark and then we have these scenes with Mark and Johnny as well where they're running or playing catch or catching up or whatever the hell they're doing what is with this game of catch too this is <laughs> the obsession with the football is fun to watch yes it's American this is macho this American man Yes, exactly. I think, you know, before we get into that, I think the inciting incident to move this plot on, I think, maybe, if there is one, is Johnny doesn't get his promotion, so Lisa gets him to drink, and... She starts accusing him of hitting people. We never see her say that to him. We'll see her say it to Michelle, though. Like, he hit me. Yes, this is the entrapment that, you know, she's become Sharon Stone now. The femme fatale is that if I get you drunk, you never drink. And he loves the taste of, uh, what, whiskey and vodka together? I don't know if it's apple juice and vodka in the (laughs) original script. It was hot chocolate and cognac. 
Okay, well, whatever it is, it does not look delicious. He cannot hold it. And then what? The follow through here is she's got to like hit herself with a sack of oranges and yes. leave a bruise or something. Like she's got to look like he hit her uh-huh. in order to sell this story. But no, no one knows that he got drunk last night. I mean, this this is a failed frame job, but that's what she's doing. Yeah, you didn't need to really get him drunk just to say he hit you. Yeah. And there's no bruises. Again, this is just one of those women who like drama. And I don't mean to stereotype women because I know not all women are like this. Sure knows my wife is not like this, but I've just known some women like this. And apparently so is Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, I mean, look, David Fincher did Gone Girl. This is no Gone Girl. It's trying to be, though. The book hadn't come out yet, but yeah, it's trying to do that. Women are evil. They're going to entrap you. Well, Michelle comes in to be Lisa's best friend. Okay. And she has her own boyfriend. Okay. But where does Pete come from? (laughs) Pete, the psychologist who, like, in some scenes, he's really pulling for Lisa. Like, oh, she's a good woman. In other scenes, he's calling her a sociopath. Yeah, his answer to everything is, it's very complicated. You know, like, he never wants to actually give any kind of guidance for how to process this. God knows Johnny needs some mental therapy at this point. I would love for a (laughs) character to come in and sit with him and have him look at what's going on and say, what role are you playing in this? (laughs) Instead of putting it all on Lisa. Because if you're funding all of this, I mean, it could easily go away if Johnny would just take responsibility and control. But no, he keeps turning to his friends and, you know, Mark is not coughing up that he has slept with Lisa and Peter is... I'm not sure where his allegiances lie, but he is not going to tell him to dump Lisa. In fact, he's going to go to the wedding. Did you notice the weird staging in that scene? Like, Peter keeps getting up and then sitting down and then he's like, I don't know, looks like he's about to knock over that CD rack. (laughs) I didn't notice, but I haven't watched this as much as you have. Yeah, no, the reason that's happening, because I noticed that, I'm like, why is he, like, playing with the CD rack, which is about to fall over, because it's not bolted to the wall? Apparently, he fell down the stairs, that staircase, in the room, and had a concussion, and had no depth perception during this scene. Oh, wow. That was a functional staircase, because it was really wobbly. Uh, Well, that's probably why he fell down it. (laughs) Okay, yes. That was another funny audience thing. Anytime anyone went up or down, they would, you know, make creaking sounds. I mean, again, if you see this with an audience there is no moment there are parts of this movie when I watched it alone I felt like wow this is a lull and really anything with Peter kind of felt like a lull but when we're with the audience they've seen it a million times they've found the jokes they will provide the comedy when the movie lets you down yeah what's hilarious that staircase it's two sound stages because it's an upstairs and a downstairs that staircase does not go up to the other sound stage so they can only walk up it so far the staircase in the bedroom they have to like hide around a corner and like walk out if they want to look like they're walking up it it's much like the shed on the roof that's supposed to be a staircase but it's on the very edge of the roof so it's obviously there's no way to use that as a staircase (laughs) unless there's like a ladder you climb straight down like again i've watched this like almost frame by frame just pausing it you could see them just kind of crowding in the corner when they're walking into that shed on the roof to act like they're walking down the stairs. I was confused because Mike lived upstairs, but Johnny has a two-story like townhouse, so how big is this building? Denny lives here, too. Yeah, Denny lives there. Mark lives there. The outside shots, the establishing shots of that apartment building do not match the architecture we'll see. Yeah, are there alternative timelines? Is this Twin Peaks or something? Sometimes he's a, <laughs> he's a pedestrian. Sometimes he has a car sometimes he's taking the trolley sometimes he's married yeah no one takes the trolley there's no one that lives in san francisco that takes the trolley i am well aware yes that is four tours only 
Here's the thing. Let me just run through an example of this for you. Because we get the whole drunken scene where apparently that's when Lisa comes up. Oh, you're going to hit me. And then we find out we're going to get to a scene in the alley where they're playing football with Mike when he talks about me underwears. That is the next day. So within a day, we get a a scene with Lisa and her mom. We get a scene with Michelle and Mike. We get their introduction, which is also when Denny walks in to ask for some sugar and butter and flour. Yeah, I think he's making pasta. Hot brownies. Yeah. Because he's either selling or using drugs. I'm not sure. Maybe both. We get another scene with Claudette and Lisa when they're coming back from somewhere, I guess meeting with that client that Lisa has for her non-existent job. Then we get a rooftop scene with Chris R. And then Mark, he's talking to Lisa on the phone. Then we get another rooftop scene with Mark and Johnny where Johnny says he didn't hit her. And then he talks to Denny. And then there's another living room scene with Michelle and Lisa where Lisa tells Michelle she got hit. And then Johnny, tell me your secret. All of that happened in a day and there are like five costume changes with all those characters (laughs) this is either david lynch twin peaks again it's something weird going on well as much as lisa appears to be screwing people maybe that's why she changes clothes although i didn't notice her changing clothes i really got confused though because we talk about the football you know they keep talking about how lisa needs to break it off with johnny because they're going to get married in a month and it's getting closer it's brought up by the mother it's brought up by michelle Then we see all the guys in tuxes, and I'm like, well, shit, the wedding's here. The most ill-fitting tuxes, that needs to be pointed out. They even have an insert shot of a church. I mean, they are establishing that a month has passed, and it's now time (laughs) for them to walk down the aisle. No, except Denny says they're going to just get wedding pictures taken. I guess... Hmm. I don't know, people dress up and just get pictures taken before their wedding? Not before, because, I mean, a lot of people still believe it's bad luck to see the bride in her dress. No, maybe just the men are, because Lisa said she hasn't even got her dress. She tells that to Denny. Most people are also renting tuxes for their wedding. They're not buying tuxes. And so you get the photos in the same day as the wedding, because that's the day you have that tux. But they decide to go out and play football in the tuxes. Except Peter, who's a chicken. Cheep, 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 cheep. But who wants to play football in a tux? <laughs> that is not... Denny, because he wants to play football always. He wants to play it on the roof by himself. I'm like, how fun is that? <laughs> he wants to play with his own ball. And then Pete falls over. I'm like, oh my God, drama. He tore the tux and what's he going to do for the wedding? His tux is fine. He fell over nothing. But again, you shouldn't be running in those shoes. You're probably just going to fall trying that. I mean, listen to the music cue. That is the sitcom moment. Burr, 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 burr. And then the next scene, we're seeing Lisa and she's sweeping for the party. I'm staring at her hand and going with Marjorie. Is that a wedding ring? Did we cut past the wedding? Are they married now? There is a ring on that finger. I guess it's an engagement ring. She might have just kept pushing it off because at one point they're together five years. At another point, they've been together seven years. So again, maybe two years have passed. <laughs> We've seen multiple preparations for surprise birthdays. Who knows? Yeah. Yes, the editor could have helped this movie greatly. Or rather, if the editor had been allowed to help this movie, we wouldn't have nearly the fun that we do laughing at all of this stuff. I mean, yeah, it is so easy to fix some of these problems. Some of them are baked in the cake. You can't fix what's here and make it a good film. But some of this, to clarify, easily done. And they're just the fact that they're still in here is a testament that, yes, this is a man that believes everything that he wrote should remain and everything that he thinks is funny ha 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 or ultimately tragic and you know tear your hair out you're tearing me apart lisa 
a James Dean line that straight stole it. Again, funny in that the original script, he wrote it wrong and he loves James Dean. He put, you're taking me apart, Lisa. Ah, yes, that's Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, I think you could fix some of this stuff with editing. You could probably fix the timeline, maybe. I mean, the fact that Lisa says the party's tonight and then we're going to get an establishing shot of night and then the next morning and she's still sweeping. But there are... Stuart, maybe you could provide more insight. I don't know if you could fix some of the continuity problems. Like when Lisa is having a glass of wine with Michelle, that continuity is all over the place. You'll see the glass sitting down on a shelf and then they'll cut to a front shot of Lisa and she's holding it right up to her lips. It is a mess. Yeah, it's a trip supervisor. That's, that never gets right. Your first films, yes, I actually did. I remember specifically one time messing up a table and being like, do I tell them? No, you don't. You let them come back and film and just that will be a problem for them to figure out in the editing room because you don't want to expose yourself as the guy that messed up their shot. <laughs> but yes, it's very common for people to move a lamp around and then when it's supposed to be in the same scene, yeah, you're seeing all of these kinds of mess ups. These are the kinds I expect out of first films. And again, if you don't have a sharp script supervisor, uh, you're going to have a lot of those. So somewhere as... Lisa's preparing for a party for a man she doesn't love and screwing a man she's apparently falling in love with who's his best friend. Mark has been talking about this woman he may or may not be dating. At one point, he says she's married, once again, leading me to believe maybe they got married. And he's still hanging out with Johnny and they go to get some hot chocolate and some tea. But not cheesecake. Everyone else is getting cheesecake, but they're not. And right after that scene, Mark is like, I don't like him anymore. What happened there? What happened was that that's how it felt like to Tommy. You know, whenever this happened in reality, he felt like everyone was nice to him. And then all of a sudden they had turned on him and everyone has betrayed me. And if he had a more grip on reality, he could probably have seen that they were probably using him the whole time. Guess what? Open your eyes. He talks about at the bank. I have great idea. They make lots of money off it already. And I not get my promotion. Like he is the greatest person. He is Jesus Christ. And everyone has betrayed him. He's a, a genius banker, a great lover a great friend and everyone betrays him again step out of the room tommy slash johnny look around ask the opinion this to me shows someone that has extreme navel gazing he does not understand that these people were probably using him all along and so it feels like this hard turn to him one minute you were nice to me now you don't like me anymore and so I'll have to kill myself. Oh, God. How many student films did I see that build to <laughs> this climax? Only, did they at least follow Chekhov's rule of putting the gun in the first act? Because where the fuck did a gun come from? I always thought, until I did this deep dive, I always assumed that was Chris R's gun. That they took that, for whatever reason, Johnny held on to it, and this was the gun he was going to use at the end. As I get into the behind-the-scenes stuff, originally that Chris R scene was in the alleyway, and then Tommy's like, no, we gotta shoot it on the roof. It's gonna be much more dramatic where you could have the gun fall down to the ground from the building. So I'm like, wait, so that's not supposed to be the same gun. That is a different gun. I mean, yes. At this point, we're <laughs> long past putting those things together. What I love, my favorite detail as we approach the party, and we finally get to this climax that they've been building to is that a character whose name I never get is the one that gets all the applause lines. There's a guy credited as Steven who will be the one lecturing Lisa throughout this party. <laughs> Why did you do this? How could you? I'm, the audience is of course yelling and who are you? 
<laughs> he is such a bad actor. I love the way his eyes get all wide when he's trying to deliver these dramatic lines. He's supposed to be Peter. Ah. The actor who played Peter, he's like, this is how much time I have to be on the set. And Tommy did not get to all of his scenes soon enough. And he's like, sorry, I got another gig to get to. Ah. <laughs> I don't know why they don't use Mike, me underwears guy. They bring in someone totally different. Yes. Yeah. Someone we've seen before. This is a really simple rule. You cannot introduce a character that has not hung out with any of these people at the very last minute to get all high and mighty and tell them what to do. What about the rule of this is essentially all one scene, this party. Sure, they're going to go outside and go up on the roof and that. Do you need five establishing shots? <laughs> during this party I counted them because I couldn't believe they kept cutting to the scenes of San Francisco during this the landmarks of San Francisco throughout maybe that's because of coverage and they didn't have the right footage but I don't know that movie has so many problems already I, yeah I don't I don't know what they get out of we know you're in San Francisco and at this point Lisa just wants to be caught, right? I mean, the fact that she's going to tell everyone, hey, everyone, let's go outside. <laughs> and then stays inside with Mark. I mean, can you imagine the looks on their faces as they're standing outside the doorway <laughs> waiting for her to come out? Yeah. <laughs> you feel like, okay, so Lisa's finally just going to leave Johnny. But we go to the rooftop where they had to reconstruct the set because they had destroyed it because they thought they were done with the rooftop. And then Tommy Wiseau is like, oh, no, I want to do this new scene I just write. And to announce that, hey, everybody, we're expecting. Like, really? That's something you announce at your surprise birthday? And then Lisa's like, I don't know. We're probably going to have a baby eventually. I'm like, I thought you are breaking up with the dude. Yeah, even Johnny is going to be able to realize, it's been 18 months, Lisa. When is our baby? <laughs> I don't know if he's smart enough to figure that out. I don't know either. He's not smart enough to have checked the tape beforehand. He audio recorded this days, weeks ago. I mean, he's he's heard from his own ears confirmation that Lisa has been having sex with his best friend, Mark. I have to ask you, Stuart, did they do the Mission Impossible theme song while he's setting up that tape recorder? I heard that's what you're supposed to hum. Oh. As he slowly walks across the room, makes this tape recorder device that would never work in a million years and like slowly walks back. No, no, that, I don't, they didn't do that. I felt like some people were trying out new material. There were some things that everyone was saying and sometimes somebody would run with it. And again, it's the kind of thing you could see multiple times and I think catch new details. I didn't hear Mission Impossible. And I thought that tape recorder wasn't recording the actual house. <laughs> It's only hooked up to one phone, but somehow records Lisa when she's upstairs. Well, if it's hooked up to a phone, it could record anything on the phone line, I would go so far as to presume. It even records things she didn't say when she was on the phone. Yes. <laughs> yes, when they play the tape back, it's a different take. It's amazing how that works. Magical. Recorded her thoughts, perhaps. He's going to have a rage flashback and trash the apartment. And he is so lethargic. He is barely like those apples just could barely flick his wrist and knock him off. My favorite is the dresser where he's got to pull a couple of the drawers out so it's light enough for him to push over because he's got <laughs> no energy at this point. I actually really enjoyed when he pulls the sheets off the bed and then decides, I'm tired. I'm going to lay on the mattress now. <laughs> Yeah, and then he's going to fuck the dress. I'll admit, the first time I was going through this midnight show, I had drank a lot of soda to keep awake. I was 
eye in the door. I needed to go to the bathroom really bad. And the laughs had waned. I will say the second half of this movie is not nearly as funny as the first half. It's really catching on how crazy this is going to be at first that really grabbed me. And at this point, I just wanted to go. I knew I was going to watch it again. But this is a very protracted death scene, as they always are. Film students, please Please, 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 whatever you do, when you make your film about breaking up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, come up with a different conclusion than I have to kill myself and they will be destroyed by it. I mean, even Kevin Smith, his original ending for Clerks was, it wasn't a suicide, but it was a death scene. He was talked out of that. Like, nah, that's a cop out. Why, why do you got to kill people at the end to try to make it deep? Yes. Because when you're young and you're a young filmmaker... And you had your breakup. You can't imagine life without it. And then once you live past that point and realize you don't usually grab guns, it seems incredibly juvenile. Yeah, and he's way too old for this shit. And you shoot her, honestly. Mm. This is the proper ending is maybe Johnny goes to jail or something, but you shoot her out of the rage. Tommy got this idea, and I don't think they'll go much detail in, in the movie about this. I'll talk about it now. Tommy saw the talented Mr. Ripley, which is, you know, Matt Damon character is, it's been a while since I've seen it, but like has a thing for Jude Law and trying to get the girl out of there and ends up killing him. Tommy saw that movie with Greg and he's like, that's it. I will not prove I am great American movie maker. And what Greg says is, as he read the script, is that he took that relationship, that love triangle, and twisted it where Tommy is both the innocent Jude Law that's going to be murdered, but he's also the twisted Matt Damon character that he's going to end up killing himself. I think maybe Denny is Matt Damon because the, the movie does end <laughs> with yeah him crying. and Except he's calling him Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's funny. <laughs> Again, it's not enough that I die in this way, and it's not enough that they come back. Flora is just covered in blood. He's like, is he dead? I mean, yes, he is dead. Yes, that I crack up every time that Lisa's like, again, I don't know. Okay, maybe it's traumatic that this person you've spent so much of your life with five or seven years is dead, but she is really broken up over it. Well, yeah, I mean, she's broken up over everything. Denny taking drugs. Until she goes to Mark and says, well, now we could be together. <laughs> and of course, Mark is like, you bitch, you've ruined everything. Yeah, again, this is the fantasy you play in your own head, right? I'm going to kill myself and it's going to hurt them so bad. You'd think that this is a tragedy, but because they play this moment so much, I'm like, no, this is the fantasy. The girl that broke my heart, I'm going to hurt her so bad by killing myself and she's not going to end up with the guy that she wanted, that she chose over. Actually, he didn't hurt her. He hurt him, his best friend. Yeah. So she was perfectly fine because she is a sociopath in this production according to peter look at her actions i mean i mean she's a gold digger maybe but again why not just stay with tommy no 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 it takes a sociopath to say he hit me he got drunk and he hit me fair enough and then to do what she does and to come out with it at the party peter was dead on about that and it shows here she's like is he dead we could be together it's the best friend who for whatever reason didn't like him anymore suddenly realizes how wrong it all was that he was thinking with the wrong head and he's gonna get away from this bitch before she does it to him yeah i love he bends down and kiss jesus slash johnny's head <laughs> because he's so sad and that's it. We hear the sirens come up and fade to black into one of those cool R&B songs. 
things. Yeah, the mood is quickly erased by those finger snaps and that sexy cooing about being like a rose. Did they clap along with those songs? I hear that's what you're supposed to do. I was in the bathroom. Couldn't tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> All I know is they heavily marketed the soundtrack. You know why? Because he, when he worked with this composer, he's like, I want full rights for music, everything. And the guy's like, whatever, I this is crap here take it all i don't want the rights to it i don't want publishing any of that so you know if you know the way film works with editing software he just ripped the soundtrack file straight to a cd and they had not been masters so sometimes they're it's really loud and then it gets quiet because they're talking he did not even out the levels it's just straight ripped <laughs> from the editing software wow all right let's not prolong this jacob stewart do you want to stay in the room Jacob. Oh, yeah. This is a movie that I will be always coming back to. I sat down and when I shown it with my, well, I call her my future wife now, because how can you not after seeing this film? But I was watching this with my wife and literally it took us at least three hours to get through because we were almost going through it frame by frame because there is so much going on. And that is the, I think, the joy with a really bad film. I don't ever feel a lull through this. I feel like there is something always crazy, always something to laugh at. And I also find like that this, again, raw, naked psychology of Tommy Wiseau just being thrown up on the screen is really interesting. Again, this outsider view of Hollywood, of movie making, of America. It's not just that it's a crazy movie. It is the story behind it, which we're going to talk more about next week. But you got to watch this film first and then you got to go and dig into the story because it's crazier than you would ever believe unless you had seen the room. So, yeah, this is awful. This is not, not a movie. This is sheer insanity. But the brownest of brown arrows, yeah, I highly recommend The Room. Stuart. Yeah, there's two things I look for when I'm watching a bad movie. Does it have enough bad to sustain it through its running time? I'm going to say definitely yes. There is a lot that's terrible here. Although I am going to argue there is a lull. I do feel like after the hour mark, I'm kind of over this movie. And there's another 40 minutes that it starts to feel claustrophobic. I'm ready to get out of the room before the room lets me go. I would definitely recommend visiting Denny before you go. Get some pot, get some alcohol. <laughs> I guess Beta Breakers is just too crazy for you, like Peter. <laughs> Yeah, Peter. Yeah, once Peter shows up, I'm less into the movie. And also, I need to feel like the target deserves it. In many cases, it's because the star, I feel like, is showing hubris. And Halle Berry won an Oscar and she made Catwoman. Get her. I mean, that's fun. But when it's unknowns, again, I think about those Tech One people. I don't want to ridicule them. I want to help them get better. The thing is, Why So is really interesting. I can't wait for the movie next week to tell me more about him. But yes, the glimmers of the man behind this project. Yeah, it's kind of like watching an Ed Wood movie. You're like, this guy has got a story. And I want to know that story. And I think that story will be deepened when we get to the disaster artist. But if I never did, I definitely would tell anyone that enjoys watching bad movies or any one that ever wants to learn filmmaking take the tech one class and just show them all the mistakes you can make and assure them you could never make a film as bad as the room i think this is a great educational tool like if you could sit here and understand what's wrong then yeah you you understand movie rules more or less yeah I'm going to give it a brown arrow as well. And that is the big thing you said, Stuart, is you mentioned I Know Who Killed Me. And that movie had me laughing for 15 or 20 minutes. And it was, you know, a 90, 100 minute movie. The Piano Teacher. It's funny all the way through. And this one, though, I'm so perplexed, but I was so riveted. Now, I'm not going to lie. I was also bored as hell because I 
said before, I watch all these movies in one sitting, but my God, was I clock watching just because the movie has no rhythm. (laughs) You don't know what act you're in because there are no acts. I had no clue how much time had passed. I couldn't even base how much more of the movie was there. At one point, it felt like 30, 40 minutes had passed. It had gone from 50 minutes to one hour. But yet for that first 45 minutes where I'm trying to just grasp with fingernails what's going on and then the party scene i'm like i thought we skipped the party scene at one point and i'm like how do you skip the party scene because if you're building to a party scene that's where all the characters come together and you have a resolution that's what you do they get a party scene but they still don't all come together because peter's gone it is so inept that it does have to be seen to be believed. I'm sorry, Troll 2, this does hold the title of worst, most inept film I've ever seen. So, it's a brown arrow. It's going to look green on the site, but this movie's stinky. I imagine Tommy Wiseau to also be stinky. Just looking at him, I just imagine an odor. Yeah, that hair, yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to learn about him. And that is the joy of the movie next week is that we get to put this all in context. I mean, to watch it the way that I did, I still don't know. I don't think even you, Jacob, reading the book know where all of this came from. I mean, Tommy has said that the disaster artist, the book is only about 40% true. I kind of got that feeling like there are times where I'm like, okay, Greg Sestero is writing this way after the fact. Whenever he talks about certain scenes being filmed, it's all the ones everybody loves. And I just don't know if you'd have that kind of foresight if you're writing this soon after it had happened. Yeah, I don't know that it was just his character that was smoking doobies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to next week. Just because of the buzz and because I want to know more about Tommy Wiseau, I don't know if I'd be better off reading the book. Seth Rogen is just a toxic personality to me anymore. I don't recall the last time I've liked anything he's even come close to touching. So Sausage Party? I couldn't finish it. Oh, wow. It was pretty bad. I'm surprised. That seems like it was made for you. (laughs) I thought so, too, which is why I tried it. And 20 minutes in, I'm like, this is not good. I think the last time I liked him was 40-Year-Old Virgin. So I'm scared once I found out that it wasn't just James Franco starring, but it was Franco and Rogan were the creative impetus for the film. (sighs) Yeah, come on, after the interview? Yeah, a movie I saw because I thought it was supposed to be the cultural touchstone. It was to support America and show that North Korea couldn't tell us what to do and... It wasn't great. We should have listened to North Korea. (laughs) Seriously, North Korea was right in that one. Franco is as probably interesting as Wiseau in my mind. He is certainly the only actor I can think of that has the kind of personality that Nick Cage did in his heyday. It's (laughs) You never know what you're going to get with him, and you never know how far he's going to take it. But yeah, Wiseau and Franco together, that's something I got to see. And I guess Wiseau's in it as well. Mm. So it's not going to be the scathing thing you hope it to be, I would imagine. Funny would be great. Illuminating would be better. All right. Well, listeners, we will be back next week reviewing The Disaster Artist. In the meantime, before the new year, a real doozy, a treat we like to call Hellraiser Revelation. If you think the room was cold. Just wait for that. (laughs) Yeah, which one's more unprofessional? (laughs) Oh, wow. I know which one I'd rather watch again. (laughs) I'm torn. Revelations is shorter by a lot. So 
Ooh, but is it as entertaining? Find out this Friday as we bring our Hellraiser retrospective to a close. If you haven't gotten in, now is the perfect time. You'll get all five Phantasm reviews and all nine Hellraiser reviews in one bundle. And then starting next week, we finish off the donation drive with Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, three of those films, and then we have confirmation. Going beyond that, maybe it'll take us a couple weeks. We're also going to cover the new Day of the Dead movie. So it just doesn't stop. What? There's a new one? Uh Uh-huh. Bloodline. I'm not Hellraiser Bloodline. This is a Day of the Dead with Bloodline. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a competition as to which Bloodline is better. And yeah, we didn't intend it, but we're going to have a winter donation drive or a mini donation drive as we re-release all of our Living Dead podcasts from the vault. So who knew? <laughs> It'll also be available through Podbean and anyone who donated previously for our Romero Living Dead series and the remakes will be getting this Day of the Dead. So we'll be back with the Disaster Artist, but don't worry about it. I still love you. Okay. my comedic movie exactly how I intended thank you for listening to this episode of now playing podcast um well I guess I better be going uh, I'll just talk to you guys later we hope that you've enjoyed the show God, why did you do this to me why for more movie review podcasts visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives I show them I record everything there you'll find podcast film reviews including Troll 2, Eraserhead, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, The Garbage Pail Kids Movie, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, Jupiter Ascending, and more. I just like to watch you guys. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Sometimes they're just too smart, sometimes they're flat out stupid, other times they're just evil. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. Wait, you, you have the money to make this? I have, it's no problem. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are reviews of all the Quentin Tarantino films, including Kill Bill, Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Jackie Brown, and Pulp Fiction with podcasts on the Jurassic Park movies, the Alien films, Planet of the Apes, War of the Worlds, Poltergeist, and more. Find them all at Now Playing's Podbean page and in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. You have my money, right? Yeah, it's coming. It'll be here in a few minutes. What do you mean it's coming, Penny? Where's my money? You can join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lord of Illusions, Lego Batman, Hook, Monster Trucks, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Isn't it fabulous? Anything for my princess. (laughs) Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. You can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend, 
This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. So I come back to get it, you know, and I pretend that I need a book, you know, I'm like looking for my book. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums, where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. Yeah, I'll let you know how it is, baby, fast. Maybe you can join me someday. Maybe I will. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Well, sure, I can come, but I don't know if I'll bring anybody. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Hi, Doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Welcome to my planning, Greg. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. If you think I'm tired today, wait till you see me tomorrow. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. I'm glad you're listening to your mother. Nobody else listens to me. You're probably right about that, Mom. The film discussed in this podcast and all audio clips and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the film analyzed herein. Now Playing Podcast is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film series. Tell me everything! You have no idea what kind of trouble you're in here, do you? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You're right. (laughs) I know. I am right. Don't worry about those fuckers. You're a good man. Drink and let's have some fun. Now Playing Podcast is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why? It's over. God, forgive me. Good night, Johnny. Johnny, played by Tommy Wiseau, is a wealthy employee of an IT company. No, he's a banker. No, he's an IT guy. No, she's an IT guy. She's at home with computers. She apparently has no job, but she also talks about clients and computers. Trust me, he's a banker. I know. I wish I had that face on, like, to put <laughs> I really listeners. I really thought he said that he had a new client who is a bank. For his IT company. No, 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 no. He, he has he got a new client for the bank. Tell me about it. I can't. It's confidential. So, Mark, how's your sex life? I understand, but I thought he worked <laughs> in IT. She's the one that talks about computers. I know. Which, again, is that code for something? Like, are you working on computers or are you advertising yourself on computers? Okay. I don't. I think she's selling computers like freelance because she doesn't go to work. She was wondering why the phone doesn't ring, and I think yes. we all can see why. No one knows what her service is. All right, I'll start over. Johnny, played by Tommy Wiseau. Mike has been talking all about this woman he may or may not be dating. No, Mark. Mark has been talking. Fuck these names. 
But yeah, Denny, this has had to have worked for him in the past, like just walking into people's rooms <laughs> and saying, hey, can I watch you? Because he is fearless here. Hi! What was the one in Small Wonder? There was a girl in pigtails that would always uh. do this. Oh, the redhead, yeah. Yeah. Chip, 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 chip. And then to do what she does and to come out with it at the party, Paul is right on with that, Paul. Peter. <laughs> You will never get it right. It's got the P. Just throw out any name. It makes as much sense. Yeah. <laughs> chip, 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 chip. 